Hi friends, um, it is good to be with you today, though I would much rather be in person. Um, I am not. Um, as many of you know, about seven weeks ago, my husband Jeff was in a um, bad mountain biking accident um, and he had a traumatic brain injury. So this has been a really crazy ride um, for all of us and Truly, without our family at New Life, um, I don't think we could have stayed afloat. Um, but that is why I'm not with you today. Um, and that is why you will see my eyes very seldom <laughs> while I give this talk because it is not internalized or memorized. And But it did mean a lot to me. Um, I had written about half of it before. Um, the accident and finish it up after because I just felt like God, um, you know, still had an intention in it. So I wish I could be with you all um, right now in person, um, but I think he still has intention with it this way. So I apologize if any children or dogs run through or, um, you have to pause a minute while my eyes catch up with the other screen I'm reading on. But thank you for your grace and thank you so much for um, what so many of you did in the last seven weeks just to, you know, help with our kids or send a gift card or bring a meal, pay for cleaning lady. It's been overwhelming um, how loved we feel and supported and um, truly God's biggest blessing in it all for sure, despite the pain. So we're thankful and really thankful that um, Jeff is doing so well in his recovery and just we've seen God's kindness in that. So here we are picking up um, in verse 21. And I have to say, um, Reading the Gospels this year, um, being in Jesus' life, um, I think I might have thrown my hands up in the air and, like, screamed when I heard last spring that we would be doing this. Um, it's just so encouraging. I think it's really um, a tricky time we're living in right now, um, you know, with COVID and the highlighting of racial sin that's been going on forever and the complexity of politics and division on just about anything you can think of. Um, and we can see as we read um, in the Bible, this is also really old problems, all of it. Um, and these are nothing new to God. Um, but it's really good as I spend time in the life of Jesus um, the way it reminds me that it's it's really not good for me not to be in the life of Jesus. Um, it's not good for me to not be in a gospel. And as much as the Bible um, is a whole, and of course we learn here so often how the entire Bible connects in a million ways to the life of Jesus and points to the life of Jesus, um, I find for myself that um, when I'm not also on top of whatever I'm reading in the scripture or about the Christian walk, um, if I don't also spend time in the gospels, reflecting on the very life of Jesus, who I say I'm trying to model my life after, um, I can get very lost 
I can get very lost um, because he really is who this entire thing is about. Um, it reminds me a lot of how I feel about date nights. If you guys know me, you know I'm obsessed with date night and um, I kind of live for them. And um, you also know I have four children and my husband and I work for a nonprofit. So arranging and coordinating things for date night and having um, spare cash to spend is pretty tricky. So about five years ago, um, I started to always have a side hustle of one sort or another just to bring in a tiny bit of extra cash exclusively for date nights. And um, sometimes it's enough cash for a babysitter and hours at a romantic restaurant, chatting and really connecting. And sometimes it's a short walk and a soft pretzel, but just the two of us. Um, and either way, my insistence about date night is centered on one belief, and that is in the craziness and disconnection of life as parents and workers and just people on earth, it's so easy for me to forget why the whole thing got started in our marriage. Um, and it's truly because this boy loved me and I loved him back very much. Um, and when we go on a date, it feels like the rest of the noise of the world kind of falls away into the background and I look at him and he looks at me and we remember um, why the whole thing got started as challenging as life can be, um, just the root of why we started this commitment to begin with. And um, because without date night, it's easy for me to forget. And that's um, how I truly feel about the Gospels. Without staying in them, I can get distracted and disconnected from this God-man who, as a Christian, we are saying um, the whole thing is about. So we start um, in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So first of all, I love the word astonish. What was astonishing about Jesus' teaching? And how was everyone so struck that um, he was such a big deal in one way or another to everybody, positive or negative? Rosemary um, Bardsley states, this unexpected astonishment is caused by the fact that Jesus taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Unlike the teachers of the Jewish law, Jesus taught on his own authority. They did not presume to speak in their own name for their own knowledge. They took their authority from recognized scholars and teachers from the past, quoting, referring, authenticating, their teaching by the authority of reputable, respected names. Jesus, however, taught in his own name, with his own authority, his own knowledge, his own understanding and presentation of the truth. Um, I love this, and it reminds me of this very Bible study. When we study a passage together, there's so many good references we can use, right, um, to help us find answers and backgrounds and theology on what we are reading and trying to decipher it. Um, but my heart ignites and listens in a whole different way 
when one of you stands up here and says, listen, this is what this passage says, and this is what I learned from this passage. Um, this is how I've seen it play out in my life. This is how it's real to me. Um, this is how I know this word from the Lord is alive and active and true. Um, it's so powerful, right? And, and that's a still a step removed from how Jesus taught from his authority as truly God. Um, the people of this day were used to religious men getting up and referencing the heck out of scriptures, referring to this man and that that came before them. And then comes Jesus. And as fabulous as it is when one of us shares from our own life and our own experience as believers, Jesus really blows it all out of the water. He somehow manages to give off humility and at the same time totally own the word of God, um, literally. And people notice it's something that can't be ignored and strikes everyone. Um, And some love it and some do not. Um, But I think they're all astonished. Roger Landry tells us there's a particular type of awe that we're called to ponder in the gospel. It's astonishment at Jesus' teaching, at the power of his word. Luke tells us that the people in Capernaum synagogue were amazed because he spoke with authority. Most of the other rabbis, as well as the scribes, Pharisees, and anyone who tried to teach the Jewish faith, would normally speak by citing passages from the Hebrew Bible or from the oral tradition of the rabbis. They were constantly using footnotes to ground the authority of what they were saying. Jesus didn't do that. He spoke as if he were the author. That's what it means to speak with authority. We see this clearly in the way that he used parables. We see it even more strikingly in how he preached the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with what they knew from Mosaic Law, and then taking the teaching much further by declaring, but I say to you, much like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus started to do this, their hearts began to burn. They could sense that they were hearing the truth from the one who knows. So cool. That, my friends, is the work of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus had, and then what he gave to us through his ultimate sacrifice in the end, that's what stopped people in their tracks. That's what made perfect stranger fishermen drop their entire lives to follow around this seemingly random man. That's what we'll continue to see in this book, cause the crowds to follow, the women to weep at his feet, the sinners to repent, the doubters to believe, and even the demons from the pit of hell to flee. And it's what caused us, right, each one of us, to fall in love with this man in the first place and want to give our lives to him. And it's that same Holy Spirit, that same part of the triune God that Jesus says, in John 16, 7, about him leaving us to ascend to the heaven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, who's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This same Holy Spirit that made demons run and attracted the masses to follow is the Holy Spirit that received, that receives when we choose to give our lives to him. 
I love how Francis Chan puts it so well about the Holy Spirit when he says, I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. I want people to look at my life and know that I couldn't be doing this by my own power. (laughs) I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. That's really one to pause my heart on, right? As I read about the life of Jesus and see the power he walks in and remember that I also, as his follower, have the Holy Spirit living in me, is my life explainable without the Holy Spirit? Jesus' life was not. The disciples' lives was not. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and so many others. Their lives made absolutely no sense without the explanation of the Holy Spirit working in them. Friend, are our lives explainable? Do our lives make sense to the world? Is my life void of the mystery and the power and conviction and risk and radical love of the Holy Spirit of God? Is yours. This is not a commercial for this. Sinclair Ferguson rounds his um, part of the story up, this part of the story up by saying, you can imagine what thoughts race through the people's heads as this demon-possessed man barged into Jesus, speaking to the crowd. What would Jesus do? How would he handle the situation? The demon-possessed man continued to shout, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Okay, this feels like this is later on. I love you guys. Thanks for (laughs) being with me. The last part here. Okay. So the people of Capernaum, they, like many in the New Testament, went from hearing religious men give religious rules and explanations from these dry scrolls to being in the actual presence of a living God. To not just hearing about God, learning about a God, listening about other people who experienced a God, but to seeing someone in the throes of the enemy actually wrapped in chains of the power of darkness, and they watched this God-man Jesus step in and by the sound of his voice, by his words, break these chains off their eyes. We see Jesus deliver this man. Let me go back to this part by um, Sinclair Ferguson. You can imagine the thoughts raced through the people's heads as this demon-possessed man barged into Jesus, speaking to the crowd. What would Jesus do? How would he handle the situation? The demon-possessed man continued to shout, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In exposing Jesus' identity, the demon hoped to subdue him in order to maintain his own influence in this poor man's life. Notice the sense of fear which grips this demon. It seems to know that the presence of Jesus marks the end of the road. The coming of the king and the inauguration of his kingdom imply that destruction and end to the kingdom, destruction and end to the kingdom of darkness. In its guilt, the demon is terror-struck by what Jesus might do. 
I'll tell you what hit me in that quote so much is evil seems to know that the presence of Jesus marks the end of the road. So good. I love verse 28. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Yes, that kind of story spreads pretty fast, right? Seeing something so radical and extreme, like nothing they had seen before um, and didn't have any real solutions that were working. From there, we head um, with Jesus and his followers to the home of Simon and Andrew. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. We read the same account in Luke 4, which reads, So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. I've heard this passage used before as an example of how Jesus can touch our lives and bring us to him, and then our natural response is service to him. Um, And I agree with that, and I see where that is coming from. Um, But here's this mother-in-law, totally taken down by illness, and Jesus walks in and literally bends over her bedside and orders the sickness to leave her. Um, she's healed on the spot, and her automatic response is to serve her literal Savior. Um, something, though, that I think may be important to point out is that I think this points us towards more than just Christian service. I think it points towards more than just we're thankful for what Jesus has done in our life, even for the way he saved our lives, and so we want to do what we can for him. I think it's about the same Holy Spirit encounter we saw earlier in the passage as people felt that authority that Jesus was speaking to them, um, speaking to demons with, speaking to illness with. I think it's about that life-on-life interaction with the Holy Spirit that inspires not just service, but an unquenchable desire to love in return. Um, My husband and I have worked in ministry for the past 16 years. That's main goal is to introduce high school students to Jesus Christ. Um, And oftentimes ourselves as leaders, um, our volunteer leaders, we can struggle with and through um, once a kid meets Christ, um, once they decide to follow Jesus, how do we help them grow in their faith and help them to live a life that honors and loves Christ in return? Um, and you know, what we have found to be most true in 16 years. Um, there's some great books out there. There's some great teachers who teach on all of this stuff. Um, there are great theologians and stances and approaches, but there's really not much to teach at all. Um, with, when a kid has an actual experience, with a living God in Jesus Christ. Um, And they experience the Holy Spirit. When you're longing um, an empty heart, when your hurting spirit and broken world encounters Jesus Christ, 
in a real way, um, your response is that every time. Um, a real encounter uh, with the Holy Spirit um, through the life of Jesus is an unquenchable desire to love him in return. And, and that's what I think we see in this mother-in-law. Um, let us be people who continually look to Jesus, to his life and to his teachings, who continually seek to experience the alive and active Holy Spirit in our lives, um, and whose only option, whose automatic response is to love Jesus in return. That's really um, my, my prayer with our four children at home um, and my prayer for the kids we work with to introduce to Jesus and disciple in his name, um, that we would truly believe and live like we believe Jesus didn't just do this for the people of the New Testament. Um, but that as he said in God's word that he's still doing this today um, with the one he left behind in the Holy Spirit. This part of the passage was followed by Jesus healing many more as the word spread and people brought the hurting to him. And then we watch as Jesus ventures and comes to a man with leprosy. Um, Author James Nestijan explains us so well. Leprosy, therefore, had multiple dimensions, medical, religious, social, and financial. The afflicted person was considered to be ritually unclean, which is spiritual. Lepers are required to live alone and to maintain a distance of 50 paces from other people, which is social. If the leper touched another person or was touched by them, the other person was considered to be diseased and ritually unclean until examined by a priest and pronounced clean. In other words, both the disease, which is medical, and the ritual impurity, which is spiritual, were communicable. The afflicted person was unable to work and thus reduced to begging, financial. Most likely, this family was also reduced to begging. The medical problem was terrible, but the other consequences added crushing weight to an already awful situation. This man with this horrible disease came begging on his knees. If you want to, you can make me clean. This leper comes to Jesus begging on his knees. It's clear that he transgresses the 50 paces boundary that he's supposed to maintain because Jesus reaches out and touches him. And the leper says, if you want to, you can make me clean. The leper has obviously heard the news that Jesus was healing other people, but is uncertain whether Jesus will heal him, whether Jesus wants to heal him. If leprosy is God's judgment for sin, perhaps Jesus will require him to serve his full sentence. The man does not ask to be healed medically, but rather to be made clean, which is a really interesting thing I had never known there was a distinction from. He's not asking um, for the lesions and the obvious outward medical condition he's in to be healed, but rather he's asking to be clean spiritually, which in this case of leprosy meant socially and spiritually. This man is not asking for the kind of cleanliness that we achieve by a bath or a shower. He's talking about spiritual cleanliness, holiness. The Jewish people of this day equated cleanliness with holiness. If you were unclean, you were unholy. 
In fact, you were unclean because you were unholy. That's why, Jesus, that's why Jewish law prescribed that a priest, not a physician, should determine whether a person had leprosy to begin with, which we can see in Leviticus 13. A leprous body was thought to be the sign of a leprous soul. So the priest was to examine a person's skin to determine the condition of his or her soul. And Jesus, who we saw earlier acting with staggering authority, calling out demons and disease by his words, this time the word makes a point to tell us this registered in the gut of Jesus. It stirred up his compassion. Seeing this man crumbling on the outside, asking for cleansing on the inside. Jesus, who we know can just say words and speak things into being, as the crowd who was surely terrified of this contagious man. As this crowd watched, Jesus reached out and touched this man, displaying both God and man in him. The Jesus who is God and cannot contract leprosy like the rest of us. And the Jesus who is man and felt compassion on his brother on earth and reached out in a gesture of unconditional, unafraid love. And right after we see this, we see a glimpse of Jesus the Son, the part of the triune God who is submitting to the will of the Father as he strongly warns this healed man not to go spread the word. This part of the passage can feel really confusing um, and so often it seems Jesus and his disciples are doing everything they can to draw attention um, to what God is doing. But the truth is, and sometimes he goes and does something like this, and it just reminds me that the truth is only God knows. <laughs> and what he knew, what Jesus knew in that moment when he was saying this to the healed man um, is that his father was orchestrating a plan and he was following him. Um, we can't know why that plan included Jesus giving this healed man such specific instructions. Um, was it because of who this man was? Was it because of what town they were in or who else was in the crowd or because of the authorities um, or that that week in politics there or um, something about the previous day or the next hour, we can't know. Um, we just know that this triune God of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that are all so present in this chapter um, in a very visible way, um, we're at work orchestrating together the most divine plan of all time. Um, I'm so excited to be on this journey with all of you, um, studying this book and um, just excited for the new ways God will reveal to all of us um, something new about himself in a word that is not stagnant and is not old, but it's new and active and, and fresh and alive. Um, and I'm so thankful for that. So let's pray together. Jesus, um, thank you just <laughs> for um, the way you are so real, God. Um, reading these things, um, remembering who you are, seeing the work um, 
of you and the Father and the Holy Spirit together. It's so big, Lord. I pray for um, my life and the life of all of us to allow you to be that big, God, um, that our lives are not explainable to this world, Lord, um, that they don't make sense without you, Holy Spirit. I pray for what you have in store for us um, this semester, despite this weird, weird time we are living through, Lord, that us digging into the life of Jesus would be um, sustaining food, Lord, um, bread for our souls. And thank you for all of this in your name. Amen.